in the parking lot. And so I'll try to remind you so you can remember that. We are uh, looking at habits in our Sunday school, and we're talking about uh, the power of habits, and we are uh, examining uh, how to break a habit. Uh, this morning, why don't we begin with our verse uh, that we use, uh, which will be the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 16 through 19. Gilbert, if you could read that for us as we uh, get started uh, this morning. We're talking about breaking habits. There you go. Uh, Brent Harris, right there. Is, uh, <laughs> Luke 4, verse 16 through 19. And he came to Nazareth, for he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So um, we are looking at uh, habits. We understand we all have them. We talked about how habits come to be in our lives. Little things end up becoming big things. Uh, the road most often traveled becomes our default. It becomes the easy thing that we do. The habit is the thing we don't even think about. We just do it. And you actually have to think to not do it. And, and so where we were last week is we started talking about breaking habits and how to break habits. And uh, we had uh, spent some time talking about deliverance and uh, God's power stepping in, that this is something that's beyond ourselves, but God declares himself to be a deliverer. And so we looked at that. And so we kind of turned the corner then and began to talk about some practical ways a person can break habits. Uh, one of the things that we uh, looked at was the reality that you could be uh, 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 powerfully delivered from some things, and yet other things don't seem to fall away so easily. That a person can come and get saved and uh, have a testimony where they no longer do drugs, they no longer are uh, drinking, uh, smoking, and various other vices, and yet still wrestle with uh, some other area of their life where they cannot seem to break the habit. And it is, it is amazing facet of human nature. And so uh, our purpose here is not to just simply say, well, science, and we're just going to do this by, by, by uh, you know, uh, human uh, strength. But perhaps they hang some things on you that uh, can help you and equip you uh, to be able to uh, have victory and to give you a strategy for victory in your life because everybody here would like to break some habits. And you say amen. And so where we began last week, and I want to continue in this, and, you know, it's always the same after Sunday school, people come up to me and said, oh, I was going to raise my hand. And, and then they don't raise their hand, and, and, and yet uh, it seemed to really uh, provoke something in a lot of people. And so last week, we said that if you wanted to break a habit, the first thing you need to do is by, uh, make a commitment to break just one habit. Not the approach that, well, I've got all these problems, and I'm going to try to solve all these problems immediately. 
but uh, uh, it is taught in the Word of God, and it is reinforced by uh, a study that when a person makes a commitment to break one habit in their lives, it has a way of creating its own momentum where they can address other habits. I used the illustration last week of a woman named Lisa Allen who was overweight, couldn't hold a job in debt, an alcoholic, a chain smoker, uh, just completely uh, messed up. And this woman is written about in one of the books I'm reading because she uh, was one night so drunk that uh, she reached for a cigarette and actually lit a pen on fire and kind of hit bottom and realized, man, I'm, I'm messed up. And so she just got in her head. She, she, she took what money she, uh, you know, what credit card she had left, used it to fly to Egypt for a vacation, another bad decision. And while she was there, just became intrigued by the idea of going on a, a trek across the Egyptian desert and decided that a year later she would do that and then said, well, if I'm going to do this, I probably need to stop smoking uh, in order to be able to pull this off. And so she just said, I'm going to just try to stop smoking. She had no intention of sorting out all the other areas of her life, but she just picked one thing. I'm going to stop smoking so I have the lungs to be able to achieve this. And so she decided to stop smoking. And in order to kind of burn some anxiety, she said, I'm just going to take up jogging to improve my lungs. And, uh, and so she started jogging. And lo and behold, she started dropping weight. She started deciding to eat differently. And uh, within a couple of years, she was running marathons. Got a job. Got engaged. Got out of debt. And all these other areas of her life came together uh, because of one thing. And she said, I'm going to just deal with this. And by attacking one thing, something changed. Uh, I mentioned to you that if you are in debt, that is the way you deal with debt. You, uh, you look at your debts, and then you target the smallest debts. And then you make that your priority. You, you pay the minimum on your big debt, and you attack the smallest debt until you clear it out. And there's something about uh, the way we're created that creates a momentum or a confidence in us to address debt in our lives. And so uh, this is true in every area. We looked at a number of scriptures uh, about the importance of small things. I gave you the quote. Uh, I'm going to read it to you. I don't know. Are we, are we up and running? Not yet. Okay. It says, when people start habitually exercising, even as infrequently as once a week, they start changing other unrelated patterns in their lives, often unknowingly. Typically, people who exercise start eating better, becoming more productive at work. They smoke less and show more patience with colleagues and family. That when somebody decides to take on one area of their life, they are doing something. So if you wanted to break habits in your life, start with one, make a commitment, because it will create its own uh, momentum. So uh, before we go any further, anybody have anything here that maybe you wanted to get to last week and we ran out of time? Any hands? Okay, we got Chris, anybody else? And Barbara. And Aura, okay. I have, uh, I've learned this about myself, and I know this is probably true for others as well, 
that sometimes we can quickly identify a detrimental habit in, in someone else's life and miss it in our own. That we could immediately see, oh, this, you know, this person could do this thing. And I had a, I had a coworker who was desperately trying to lose weight um, a few years back, and, and uh, she was serious about it, and she, was, she uh, had this struggle. And what I noticed is she had this gigantic purse and it was filled with every kind of candy imaginable. And she told me, yeah, she, you know, she never fills up her tank at the gas station. She uh, you know, only puts in a little bit of money at a time. And every time she goes in to pay, she gets something. And so I told her, why don't you just fill your tank up every time you go and always pay at the pump? You avoid going into the gas station because she said she didn't buy any of this stuff at the grocery store anywhere else, but it was always at the convenience store. There it was, and she'd just kind of grab it and stick it in her purse. And so uh, in a short period of time, of just uh, we called it the fill at the pump diet, in a short period of time, she started losing weight. She started losing a taste for all the stuff that she had stuffed in there. It was kind of a bummer because she, she was good for snacks at work. She always had something in her purse. But, uh, but she was doing so well, and it kind of you know, gave her a boost of confidence when she started making some momentum, and uh, she began to like, exercise a bit more, and in a short period of time, and she's maintained it, has uh, lost a bit of weight and kept it off. While I'm telling her all of this, I'm realizing that there are little issues in my life as I see myself do it, that I'm like, man, this, this is a problem. And it was so easy for me, you know, this is all you need to do you know, to, to get that solution, but sometimes we need God to open our eyes to the things in our, our lives that we can't see, even yeah. though we can, we can quickly identify them in another. Yeah. Large purse. That's why they have large purses. Stash candy inside. Okay. Huh. All right. So the, 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 the idea is it creates its own momentum. Barb? Um, mine's not like that, but uh, I, I'm pretty um, spacey. And so when I would get money um, as a kid, $5 or a dollar or whatever it happened to be for, you know, when I was 8, 10, 15 years old, my, the thought was, that's my money and I need to go buy something because it's for me. And, um, and so I was, I was very uh, selfish, I guess, or, or I would hold on to that. And so my mom um, had a uh, issue and she took off from her house uh, for a m couple months, and I had no discipline in money at all, none. I, I was a teenager, and it was mine. And so I'm 15, and my sister's 13. My brother's already gone and out of the house, married, and my mom disappears and, for months, and my dad has to sit down with me and say, you have to be in charge of the money in the house, of groceries, and, and I, I'm clueless. I don't have a thing. You know, pay the bills, and I'll sign the checks, and so we sat down and, and, you know, with a calculator and, and a notebook, and he showed me this is how you do a budget, and this is, these are our expenses, and these are our, our fixed and our, our you know, non-fixed expenses, and this is how much money we have. And, I mean, it was math 101 as I sat there and for months had to pay the bills, had to allocate money for food and for gas and all that. And I, I established a habit to... Uh, and my dad would say, pay yourself first. Uh, it's like tithe to yourself in a, in a sense in the worldly way. But pay yourself first. You always put money away for savings because you never know what's going to happen. And then here's your bills and you want to pay these. And my mom hadn't been paying bills for almost a year. So I'm surprised they didn't turn off our electricity. But we had to like call these people and, and made a budget. And from that day forward, from the time I was 15, I have used the exact same method to, um, to deal with finances 
from, from that, from 15 years old. I've never changed that. It became a habit. And so then money coming into me wasn't like, oh, you need to go spend it. It was like, no, that needs to go in this envelope and we need to figure this out. So in a monthly basis, we know where our money's going and what we're doing. And when I got saved, that pay yourself first became pay God first. And so I've never missed a tithe from the day I got saved. Um, never even thought about it. It was, um, you know, God's first, and you pay God first, and everything else falls into place. And I've seen, I, I, I feel truly blessed that I've never had to worry about not having a roof over my head or food on my table. I've been able to bless other people um, that are struggling when, when I can see that there's a need. Uh, my dad was you know, instrumental in children's church first Christmas. It's just, you know, it was blessing after blessing because of that one thing. You know, put God first. Put and, and have a budget. Establish a habit of, of paying your bills little by little. And you won't have to worry about them turning off the lights or, yeah. or whatever those things are. Very powerful when you start, when you make commitment to one area. Uh, aura. I remember that when I came over here to the church, I was struggling because uh, I had a lot of habits, right? I used to street, uh, smoke a lot, and I was tidying and everything, but uh, I used to smoke a lot. I used to use drugs and drink. I was a drug addict, and I was uh, drinking a lot, and uh, I was paying my tight. That what helped me, I think. But um, I was always drinking, I was always drunk. And um, I started tithing and God helped me a lot. And uh, I let go of my drinking and my cigarettes and my heroin. And I used to use a lot of drugs, drinking drugs and all that. But thank God he helped me a lot. And I think it was a tithe that I was giving the tithe. And, um, but I let go of everything, everything. Hallelujah. Thank God I don't have to smoke, I don't have to buy cigarettes or more, I don't have to be like I was. But God helped me a lot, I thank God for it. All right, very good, Aura. Hallelujah. That's the power of the gospel. Hallelujah. Started tithing, and all these other habits fell away. That's very good. Thank God. All right, I have a quote for you. We're still not, we're still, huh? what's the deal here? So uh, let me read this to you. I know we get so used to seeing visual that a little bit, but I want to read you this quote. It says, studies have documented that families who habitually eat dinner together seem to raise children with better homework skills, higher grades, greater emotional control, and more confidence. Making your bed every morning is correlated with better productivity, a greater sense of well-being, and stronger skills at sticking with the budget. Somehow, those initial shifts start chain reactions that help other good habits take hold. So, I mean, think about it. A family that just says, we're going to sit down and eat together, that's it. We're just going to sit down, we're going to eat together. If you're a parent and you're raising children right now, just that habit causes homework skills, higher grades, emotional control, and confidence. So you, you may not, you, you can try to address 
you know, the homework and the other issues. But just, just saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going we're gonna to start eating meals together. We're just going to sit down together as a family. And just having that leads into these other areas of their life. And then he goes into make your bed. If you make your bed every morning, how many people make their bed every morning? No, 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 not lift your hand. Make your bed every morning, better productivity, a greater sense of well-being, stronger skills at sticking with the budget. Just make your bed. Make your bed and you'll get out of debt. All right? Just like that. So what are we saying? We're saying start with one thing. You say, man, you know, you know what, from now on, I'm going to make my bed every morning. Now, I'm going to read you the, uh, uh, I mentioned this, I read this in, um, uh, the other day in a sermon, but I want to uh, read it to you again. This is from Admiral uh, William McRaven. He is the uh, retired Navy SEAL, Admiral, 37 years a Navy SEAL, and he spoke at the University of Texas uh, graduation last month. And uh, he was speaking to these graduates about how they could change the world. And uh, he said 10 lessons that he learned from Navy SEAL training or boot camp, which is considered to be the most difficult boot camp in America, if not the world. And I'm going to read you what he says. It says, every morning in basic SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks rooms and the first thing they would inspect was your bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. That's Navy talk for bed. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened seals, but the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished your first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed, Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made that you made, and made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. If you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. And I feel some of you right now because you didn't make your bed this morning. <laughs> but here again, it's reinforcing this thought. We read the scriptures last week, this one thing. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, one thing you lack. The apostle Paul said, this one thing I do. And so uh, there are things that we can do to say, I'm going to establish a good habit and just start right there. What one thing could you do? that could change you. What one thing? They'd say, you know what I could do? I, I, I left off last week by appealing to you to start every day in prayer. 
Start every day in prayer. Start every day by making a commitment. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to remind myself that I'm a Christian today and that I'm going to seek God's will for my life. I'm going to open this book and I'm going to read it. I think sometimes people get trapped in the idea that I, if I don't pray an hour, then I have no point in praying. If I cannot make it to the prayer meeting, then I, I can't pray. Absolutely not true. Establish the one thing. Make up your mind. Say, okay, I can do these things. They will create their own momentum. All right. Anything else on this before I move on to the next topic? Got Francisco right here and Bridget, these two. Um, I remember when I first moved down here uh, about six months ago, and uh, I just I just left, you know, a, a lifestyle of drugs, anger, and uh, when I got here, I still had a lot of anger in me, and uh, my brother actually put some standards in the apartment that, uh, that we live at, and he was like, you know, if you live here, you're going to have to go to prayer, you have to be at the church functions and all these things, and personally, I didn't like that. I was like, man, what the heck? You know, I'm being forced to do this, you know, and I would argue with him. I'm like, nah, dude, you don't, you don't tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I'm 20 years old, you know, this, this, and that. And he would, uh, you know, kind of, hey, you're going you're gonna to do what I say. This is my house. And, and uh, so I began to start going, you know, day by day. And then what I realized, you know, and because the fact is I'm a Christian. That's, that's why I'm here. And that's why I moved to San Antonio was to be a Christian, to be different. Um, I needed God. And so during, and then after the first, first month or two, you know, it, it, began to be, it began to get easier. And my anger, which I had a lot, and I would just blow off, like, quick. It, it just began to subside. And, and that was just the fact that I was going to prayer and getting a hold of God. And, to, and I began to really talk to him, like, hey, you know, God, I, I need help with my anger. I need help with the decisions that I'm going to make when I go to work. You know, I need your help to help me to be an example and not blow up on people or, or whatever, or say things that, anything. And so that habit is what's, what's been carrying me more and more and more. And then the, in certain times, you know, I'll wake up maybe a little late and I don't make it to prayer. You know, I still get in my car and I still cry out to God. Oh my God, I'm sorry I didn't make it to prayer this morning, but I, I need your help because today is gonna be a, I work in construction, so it's pretty vile working there, you know, and and so what that does to me, it, it gives me a peace inside. It's like, man, okay, me and God, we got a connection. So I, well, I'm going to go to work and everything's going to be okay. Very good. Excellent. Bridget? When I, was, when I, was, um, when I first got out of the Air Force, my dad started showing me about investments. And he said, no matter what, I always look at, always look at these funds because I've been watching them for the last 10 years. I've been watching them for 20 years. I've been watching them for 30 years. No matter what, go with the ones that have been successful over 10 years. And so it was interesting because, you know, I watched him do this, and he goes, and then take 10% of your income, and no matter what, before you spend it on McDonald's, before you go somewhere, before you take your vacation, because he knew I lived to do those, he said, put 10% away, and always, always do that. And he goes, you'll be able to retire, you know, and by the time you're in your late 50s. And he goes, but don't start until later on. So anyway, so I kind of followed this, and I watched the, his funds. And so last night I read this book about uh, Sir John Templeton, and they asked him, he was the creator of the Templeton Funds. 
And I thought, you know, this guy was a billionaire. And they said, what was your, what is the number one investment everywhere all over the world? He always, what is your number one investment? He goes, the number one investment you can make is to tithe. 10% right off the top, give that to God, honor God with your money, and you'll be rich. You'll be rich in other ways that you can imagine. 10% right off the top. And I thought it was interesting because my dad, 10%. And so what I told him, I said, Dad, I always give 10%. And so he goes, that's fine, but you do this. And I thought it was interesting because one of the funds that my dad invested in was the Templeton funds. Whether it's the same one or not, I don't know. But I thought, how interesting, the richest man, and you can compare that to Rockefeller, but this man gave over a billion dollars away to charity in his number one investment. And he said from the very start, you give 10% to God first, and then you give to your investments. Very good. So um, it's very interesting how that would emerge in this conversation about the power of one thing and being uh, faithful in one thing, having a, a cascading effect in other areas of our life. And so Bridget shares this testimony about this man, and Aura talks about her own life and how somehow she related it to tithing. And so, uh, you know, in the boot camp uh, Friday night, uh, uh, Yolanda and I were in the Rio Grande Valley doing a rally uh, a couple months ago, and a teenager, because I had shared some stories there about how giving to world evangelism is like tapping into a gold mine, and God really begins to bless you. And, and this... Uh, a teenager came up to me and said, can I share my testimony with you? And she shared how she, uh, the church in McAllen was going to be planting a couple in Brazil, and so they were taking up uh, an offering, and she didn't have any money. Uh, she didn't have a job, and she's, but she said, God, I really want to do this, and so she felt God really deal with her to pledge a certain amount of money she did not have. And so she said, God, you open the door, and I'm going to do this. And so she paid this pledge, or she wrote this pledge. The very next day, she started getting phone calls for babysitting jobs. And so uh, she worked these jobs and just simply took all that money she kept earning and just gave this, fulfilled this pledge. Soon as she paid the pledge, uh, some family friends, she said they're like grandparents to her, but some family friends called her and said, uh, uh, we want to do something for you. And they gave her a, 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 like a money card, like a debit card, and said uh, that what we're going to do for the next three years, every month we're going to put this amount of money on this card so that you have a little spending money. If the amount they're putting on the card for the next three years per month is the amount that she gave in her pledge. So she gave this amount, and 36 times over, they, they said, we're going to do this. Not only that, they said, we have an old car, we want to uh, fix this car up for you, and so you have some wheels. Uh, and, uh, and, but what was interesting is she shared this, and I wanted to share this testimony because of all the things that we're trying to impart to these young people is if you will learn to trust God with your money, you have no idea of the far-reaching effects. You, you, it, it, it cascades. It really It's the little things that create momentum. And if you want to change your habits... Start with something, and, and everything will change. Okay, let's move along here. I want to talk about the second way that you can break bad habits, and that is put yourself with people with good habits. Put yourself with people with good habits. We are social creatures. Oh, here we go. We are social creatures, 
And we are influenced for good or bad by those we surround ourselves with. This is a fascinating uh, uh, reality that, that we are spiritual. You are not just uh, material. You're not just the, a composite of bone and flesh and muscle and sinew. You are a spirit. And because of that, we are affected by who we surround our with, ourselves with. And when you get enough people together, they create a spiritual principality or a spiritual force or a spiritual authority. That is why we come to church. We come to church because together, when we begin to worship, we create a climate or an atmosphere that is favorable to spiritual dominion as a Christian. You're stronger, you're healthier. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. How many know that here is a much more beneficial spiritual atmosphere than if you went down to uh, Infierno or whatever they name these clubs nowadays? Okay. You are going to have a difficult time being edified going to some R&B concert, listening to Kanye West. Amen. Say, well, I, I'm not going to drink. But you're putting yourself in the wrong atmosphere. Okay. Let me give you a better example. Tonight, the Spurs are playing the Heat. Game five, the NBA championship. Amen. We will be in church. And, uh, and, uh, but most people are saying it's going to be over tonight. That would be nice. If they win, then I'm going to go downtown and turn a police car over and light it on fire, okay? <laughs> but after church, you know. In my, you'll see the pastor, you know. Anyway, but the reason why pretty much 90% of people believe the Spurs are going to win tonight is because they're playing on their home court. And unlike any other sport, home court has a decided advantage because the crowd is right up on the players. They're not wearing helmets or anything like that. There's only five of them on the court at a time. And there's a spirit there's a momentum of like-mindedness that causes the home team to perform better and it causes the road team not to perform as well. This is scientific. It doesn't, it's not automatic, obviously. It didn't work in Miami. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm getting inspired right now, you know. I mean, I, all of a sudden, I felt this anointing. So um, there, but the idea is that because we are spiritual beings, we are affected by atmosphere. We're affected by what's going on around us. And so if a person wanted to change a habit, then the idea that I'm going to quit hanging around people with similar bad habits, and I'm going to place myself around people who have habits that I aspire to gain in my life is only logical. If you wanted to stop drinking and smoking, then you should not hang around with people who are drinking and smoking. Right? If you wanted to change some feature of your life, why would you hang around people where that is created a principality? Where being around that makes you crave this behavior. Listen to this. Uh, this is, uh, I clipped this article out. 
This is, uh, says, lifting voices together in praise can be a transcendent experience, unifying a congregation in a way that is somehow both fervent and soothing. Whereas, but there's actually a physical basis for those feelings. To find this out, researchers at the Salgrenska Academy at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden studied the heart rates of high school choir members as they joined their voices. Their findings, published this week in Frontiers in Neuroscience, confirm that choir music has calming effects on the heart, especially when sung in unison. Using pulse monitors attached to the singer's ears, the researchers measured the changes in the choir members' heart rates as they navigated the intricate harmonies of a Swedish hymn. When the choir began to sing, their heart rates slowed down. When you sing the phrases, it is a form of guided breathing, says musicologist Bjorn Vikoff of the Academy who led the project. You exhale on the phrases and breathe in between the phrases. When you exhale, the heart slows down. But what really struck him was that it took almost no time at all for the singer's heart rates to become synchronized. The readout from the pulse monitor starts as a jumble of jagged lines, but quickly becomes a series of uniform peaks. The heart rates fall into a shared rhythm guided by the song's tempo. Members of the choir are synchronizing externally with the melody and the rhythm. Now we see it has an internal counterpart. So what they found is that when people sing, what was interesting about the study is when they sing worship music, their hearts begin to beat as one. There, there, there's a unifying. There's a synchronizing when people gather together and just simply saying worship together, something happens to them. It was interesting as they've done this in other arenas, girls volleyball and, and not have this kind of physical effect. But the idea of not just singing, but singing praise does something collectively to everybody around them. And it's because we are influenced by our surroundings. We are affected, and it, it's something as simple as saying, I'm not going to be around them, but I'm going to put myself around them. It's going to have an effect. You know, it's interesting reading about uh, one of the uh, books I read was on Alcoholics Anonymous. Very interesting that the man who started it was just a drunk in New York, and he had, what had happened is he had a powerful spiritual experience. He had a conversion. And it was out of this conversion, he was, uh, you know, he was trying to dry out at an asylum. And uh, his claim is that God came down and just delivered him from being a miserable alcoholic. And he came out, and he's the one who organized Alcoholics Anonymous. This is, you know, what we know today is not how it began. But the simple idea at the beginning was that you need to touch God and you need to get away from the people you're hanging around with and hang around people who take not drinking seriously. That was it. That, that was it. He didn't, he didn't have any other formula. He didn't have the 12 steps yet or anything like that. It was simply that God can help you and you just need to quit these relationships and replace them with people who understand the dangers of alcohol. And so hence the meeting where you go, hi, my name is Richard. Hi, Richard, I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, and, and then you tell your story 
And what you are reinforcing is the power of the group. I could change who I hang around with, then I would change my life. I would become a different person. And to this day, there's no trick to Alcoholics Anonymous or any 12-step program. Some of the men here and probably a few women have gotten themselves in trouble with the law from time to time. And, and one of the things that they sentence them to is going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you, you know, a lot of times they don't want to go, but it's like, hey, you know, fulfill your obligation to the state, you know, and stay out of jail and go. And, and they go, and it's a waste of time. Why? Because in church, they have found those needs being met. When we had our church in Corpus Christi, uh, I remember the church was right next door to an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting place, an AA meeting place. And we would have church in right next door. You know, I, I, I hate to say it, but it would be, you know, we'd go and the parking lot, the church members, you know, a few old cars, you know, the little Pioneer Church, you know. And then the AA, we'd have Mercedes Benz and all these nice cars as everybody's at the AA meeting. And we'd come out of church and they'd all be out in the parking lot smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. Agitated, you know, all, all the dynamics of AA. And yet, these people that had gotten saved, they saw no need to go to AA. Why? Because in the house of God, those needs were being met in a much more real and powerful way. God can help me, and I am now putting myself around people who exhibit the habits that I long for. Over there, it had become a shell of what the intention was. Change you to hang around with. A couple of scriptures here. Lift your hand if you want to read. Rick, 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4. Uh, Thomas, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Daniel, Proverbs 13, 20. Okay. Anybody want to throw in anything right here before we get to these scriptures? Daniel and uh, Bethel. Um, on actually on Friday night, <clears throat> I was talking to Pastor uh, Jeremiah Wacker, and so we were just talking about different things. Um, he was asking me how how was going, um, life and everything, and he made an interesting thing that I've all, I've heard over the years. But he said, um, Daniel, he goes, you're in the next five years, you're gonna become like your five closest friends, and he just kind of made the the statement, and I was like, okay, sure, yeah, you know, I mean, I've heard it before, but then. Um, I was, I started looking back and I was like, okay, five years ago, who did I hang around? And I noticed that I started becoming like them. I know I kind of looked back and saw who I was five years ago. And I saw that some of those people, they had grown on me and kind of made me little habits and little things I would say, little phrases I would say, and little things, the way I would react to things. And then it made me also think, okay, well, if that's true when I was five years ago, well, let me think about my next five years and who, who do I want to be like? Who do I want to surround myself with to be able to learn things? And it also helped me to see, like, not only was I thinking about, like, oh, well, I mean, I, I want to hang around only one certain type of people. But it was, you know what, I want people that are, that are spiritually minded, but that have, can help me in different areas of my life as well. Not just like, oh, well, I mean, they can all help me in one area, but then, you know, I mean, in my financial area, I'm lacking because all of my friends just spend their money. Like, I, it helped me to see, you know what, I need to actually think about who I want to hang out with so then in five years, I can become like them financially, you know, I mean, uh, spiritually, in every area of my life, and not just a little bit, but it helped me to see. He said that, 
and it helped me think, man, I actually have to, if I think about my friends and I hang around those certain people that can help me, it'll actually help me in the next five years. I can become like them. And so I want to hang out with people that I would like to see myself, my, my life in like theirs. Amen. You know, I remember years ago, a uh, young lady here, uh, at the end of a year, you know, she was doing really good. And she told me, she said, what changed my life you know, she's been in church for a while, is the, the beginning of the year, you know, you think of New Year's resolutions or what can I do different this year? And she said, I began to really pray, God, I want to change some things in my life. And she said, I really felt God deal with me to change who I hang around with. And, and, and she said, it was amazing when I made a conscious decision about that thing. She said, some, you know, I changed. We all get nervous because the last thing we want is after Sunday school, someone to come and say, God spoke to me to quit hanging around you, you know. <laughs> and I'm not talking about being a blame shifter this morning. But if you want to change habits, then you really do have to say, okay, I have this bad habit. My home girls or my home boys, we all have the same problem. Am I feeding this habit loop in my life? being around these people all the time. You know, trying to think of an, an example without, you know, it's like, whoa, Pastor, that was a cheap shot, you know. Let's say splurging and overeating late at night after church. I'll throw that one out because it never happens around here. <laughs> well, you know, you're talking about, you know, ah, we got to go shape, we got to, you know, we're going to do that, yeah, we're going to tear it up, we're going to do it, and then uh, there you are, you know. Parked over on Marbach, right there in front of the taqueria, you know. You're on a first-name basis with Juan, and, uh, you know, put it on my tab. And, and, and you're like, eh, we're doing it again, eh, you know. And, and so you create a habit loop. And so, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just saying you have to say, okay, I've got to put myself in this place because I am a social creature. I'm affected by spirit. And, and I have to think, think this thing through my life. Beto. Um, Pastor, when I graduated from Texas A&M in Kingsville, I came back to Eagle Pass, and uh, I graduated in May, and in, in October I entered the Potter's House there in Eagle Pass, and, and I, I came out from college with a very liberal mentality. I didn't believe in marriage. And so when I started going to church, uh, Pastor Alfredo Barron used to invite me to his house to eat quesadillas. And, yeah, uh, I, I've eaten their food. <laughs> very That'll delicious. establish you. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I had this mentality that I was never going to get married because the people I hanged around with, they were getting divorced left and right, and they were just, you know, unfaithful and everything. And so, but I started hanging around with Pastor Alfredo, and his life just inspired me, the way he treated his wife, the way he, he lived, the discipline he had. And, and all of a sudden, I began to believe in marriage, and and, and God began to speak to me. You know what? You could get married one day. You could be faithful to, to one woman. And, and so uh, I started just his spirit began to be contagious on me. And later on, I started to inspire marriage. And I started to, to inspire faithfulness. That principle, that spirit came into, into my soul and said, hey, this is right. And, and this is awesome. And, and you know what? You can be happy if you're just, you know, faithful to one woman. And, and, you know, we're going to go now for 20 years being Hallelujah. married. And, yes, amen. And it all, it all happened with one man. Yeah. 
who, who inspired me, who, who lived a life that way. You know? you know, it's amazing, as I remember before you got married. Isn't that amazing? I feel old. And uh, 20 years already. Unbelievable. Hallelujah. You can do that. You know what? I need to, I need to, you, you can admire someone. You ever think about Elijah and Elisha? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. You know, that was not the Holy Spirit he was talking about. You look it up. It's not a capital S. It's a small S. There, here, he says, you know what? There are things in this guy I admire. He'd hung around him for nine years by that point. And he says, I, basically, I want to be like you. I want what you have. I, there are qualities that he saw in Elijah that he said, I, I want this. I, I don't know, you know, different things that we know about Elijah's ministry. And he says, I want this. I want this spirit. I, I, I need this in my life. I want what you are. And so a lot of times, you know, we live in the society where I'm an individual. I don't have to be like anybody. And, and you, know, uh, you know, it's amazing. So I'm going to, you know, my hair is going to be orange, and I'm going to put nine different jewelry pieces in various parts of my face and tongue and cover myself in tattoos because I don't want to be like everybody else. Well, you look exactly like everybody else. So, well, I don't want to, that's not an independence. It's another spirit. Not like, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to conform. Well, you are conforming. Well, you're conforming to somebody else. Dennis Rodman, thank you, Mr. Rodman, was this radical psycho in the mid-1990s playing for the most popular team in America. And, and the, the outflow of that was he took a freak part of society that's always been on the edges, and he mainstreamed it. And people thought, what a quirky, what a nut, on and on and on. And then five years after, here we go. All of a sudden, this becomes mainstream. Now you got 12-year-olds who want to get tattoos. Okay. Now, you know, you have people, church people that want to come and they're all pierced up and uh, they got, uh, you know, a, a, a little thing in their tongue. You know, it's like, what's wrong with you? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. You've been influenced by another spirit. You've embraced another spirit. So you and I are affected. First Peter 4, 3 and 4. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in the lewdness, lust, drunkenness, reveries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. So think about what Peter is saying here. He says, you know, in our past, and it's funny because Peter was a good Jew. He never even eaten a, a piece of bacon. But yet he's so nice. He says, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelry, drinking parties, and abominable. I don't know if Peter ever went to a drinking party. But he's, you know, he's associating we. And so he's saying we were psychos. Anybody here identify with that verse of scripture? Say, you know, I wasn't always a Christian pastor, but there was a time in my life where, yes. He says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them. In other words, they don't like the fact that you're not doing what they're doing anymore. You don't go to the parties they go to. You don't go to the clubs they go to. You don't go to the movies they go to. And they don't like it, and they think you're weird because you don't do that. They think you're strange 
because you're not getting drunk anymore. They think you're strange because you're not parting with them or running with them the way you used to into dissipation. And he says, and they speak evil of you. You're in a cult because you're not going out to the club and drinking with us. You're in a cult because you now wear clothes. You're, you're, you're brainwashed because you no longer are blowing, uh, you know, $300 a night on, a, on a going crazy or waking up with a stranger. And they speak evil of you for no other reason than you said, you know what? Now that I'm a Christian, I've got to stop hanging around here and start coming over here. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. Evil company corrupts good habits. And this is the issue always with teenagers. Okay? Is they have all these bad... They're just my friends. And you say evil communications corrupt good habits. As Daniel said, you really are the people you hang around with. You know, every parent who has to deal sometimes with teenage has to go through this, you know, where they, they've got these bad friends, and it's like, oh, how could you accuse me of that just because they do it? Well, why are they your friend? Why are your spirit uncomfortable with that spirit? And I would say to mom and dad here, with all due respect, you are fooling yourself. You think that little Johnny or little Susie who hangs around some bad kid, but they're, not, they're just being a Christian influence, you're deceiving yourself. Okay? I'm, I'm saying this in a wonderful spirit of love and grace and mercy and compassion. You are deceiving yourself. There's a reason why they're hanging around. Lady Gaga. Okay? There's a reason they're hanging around these people. There's a like spirit. And they will. Evil company corrupts good habits. We are affected socially by the people that we are, we are around. And the, well, they're just my friends means a great deal. I would say to parents of minors, teenagers, you do have the right to get involved with who your kid hangs around with. Let me, hey, can I throw this one in? Well, I love Sunday school because you get to throw things in. Okay. Years ago, I had a, 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 a parent whose child was a little rebel, always in conflict and strife. And the parent was very upset and came to me because they found out that another parent had ordered their child to not hang around their her child. And she was like, that isn't right, you know. And, She's telling her, her, her kid not to hang around my kid, and, you know, and just how they're going to love, and, you know, the acceptance of church and all that. And I politely said, that parent has every right to decide who his kid hangs around with. That was not a popular answer, I can tell you. But it's nevertheless true. Because you, you have, we are spiritual creatures, and we are going to be affected. That's why you're the mom and, or the dad and they're the kid. You make decisions for them. At some point you say, nope, nope. 
hey, Dad, Tupac and the gang are coming by, and we're going to roll tonight. No, you're not going with Tupac. Okay, you're not going to do that. Well, I'm going to witness to him. No, you're not. They're going to witness to you. Okay, uh, Ever and Joe. Brief, we only got a couple minutes. Well, reading, reading the scripture uh, reminds me of when I first uh, got saved and I'm working construction. So I started finding myself making some stands. My stands were really rough and then, you know, they were real tough. You know, you're, you're not going to influence me. So I really started pushing people away. And so, you know, moving from other companies and going to other places, I, I said, I want to be a good influence. I don't want them to influence me. And so uh, I know that it's contagious and that people can influence you. But like the scripture says, evil company, uh, evil company corrupts good habits. I got to say that good uh, company corrupts uh, evil habits because I started noticing my stance and being in prayer and asking God to help me that my spirit started influencing those around me. Going to new companies, you know, you get this attack of, you know, all these demonic attacks, you know. One of them is flirtation. And you make a stand, and all of a sudden you start realizing people don't joke around the way they joke around with others. And they start noticing the difference. And they start noticing how you respect them, and they start respecting you, and how you treat your wife, and all of a sudden, you know, they start changing. And so, you know, I say that because we can be, as Christians, we can be really, really overprotective. It's, it's good, but we got to remember that the goal is to influence others and to bring salvation onto their life. Uh, Pastor, real quick, when I was in high school, uh, we uh, were party animals, me and my friends. So uh, we partied all the time. But uh, there was a, uh, some seniors, they were older than us, and they were party animals too. And then uh, they were brothers to one of, the, one of our buddies. So they invited us to party, and we went out to party. And then, uh, then uh, we know, one of our friends, which I'm sure you know our friend here, uh, found out that uh, the two, those two guys were gay, okay? So immediately in my generation, if you were gay, that's it. You know, it's over. You're not gonna, we're not going to hang around with you. But this generation is different. So out of this guy wanting to say, hey, look, he's just different. We can still party together. I said, no way. I'm not going to party with him. They partied with him. And, you know, he told me something very interesting, and I'm saying it for, for a lot of the young people here. He said, you know what, Joe? I never even thought about stuff like that, but when I started partying with these guys, I started thinking, what is it like to kiss a boy? What, I'm not, I know it's gross. I'm not trying to gross you out or anything. I'm just telling you because of the... Because there's a lot... Pastor, there's a lot of dykes in school, and there's a lot of gay guys at school, and the pressure is on our young people yeah. to accept them, and they're yeah. just different. You can yeah. still be best friends. You can study together. Yeah. No, sir. Anyway, that's just... Very me. good. So let me just throw this out real quick because, uh, because what he's saying is absolutely true, and so this idea, well, you know, I just go... I'm not gay, but I go to the gay bars. Right? Or some of my friends are gay because uh, they, they give good haircuts. And uh, or they do this or that. Absolutely. In fact, I will say about because when you're dealing with this, you're not dealing with people who were born this way. Absolutely not true. That's propaganda. Not born this way. They are people that have a particular lust. That's what it is. A particular lust taste. And and it's an aggressive spirit. 
And so, yeah, you are absolutely fooling yourself. That's what I said. You need to pay attention to that if you're best of your parent. Hey, you need to pay attention to that because we are affected. One last verse, Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. See, you don't have to be a fool. You just got to hang around with a fool. I know a pastor's kid, one of these kids who just, you know, he was so desperate to not be known as a PK. He wanted to be known as an Eminem, a cool, you know, angry young Eminem. And uh, just, you know, and so, you know, you'd go to, you, you, he acted like he was thuggish and streetish and he hung around thugs and, and, uh, and you'd never know. He grew up all his life in a Pentecostal church. His father's a pastor, go to conference. You know, you know it's, uh, yo, 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 you know. And, and, and so one night he's out with his friends. They pull into a liquor store. He's in the car. They come out. He had no idea what they had just committed armed robbery. Did five years in the penitentiary. Five years. You don't have to be a fool. You just have to be a companion of one. Want to change? Change who you hang around with. Okay, we're done right here. The Lord bless you.